deceptive manipulative. He's also a former social worker and a political campaign activist. Some people in town say the base is run by aliens working with our federal government to conduct mind control and genetic experiments. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. What up, everyone? Welcome to the Eerie Americas. I'm Christy Hall. And this is Vicky Ayala. And I am so very happy we have Borfin gotten this working, guys. We have been trying to record for, what, 90 minutes? <laughs> 90 minutes. Yeah. Since, it's since 2 o'clock New York time, and it's 3.57, so... Okay, so I'm wrong. Two hours now. <laughs> Almost two hours. <laughs> We've been trying for two hours. There's always something going on with some kind of software. It's always a, a thing for us, like, ever since... Ever since the podcast no literally since the, since its inception you had to get your laptop like fixed by a professional we have cursed we have cried we have literally taken breaks because we just couldn't get it working and then all oh, today we're all ready to go it's super fucking hot in both of our states we have no ac on and this shit doesn't want to fucking it's been, work it's been loads of fun guys i'm telling you this is like <laughs> giving birth over and over again it never ends i mean i've never given birth but i can imagine <laughs> that this can't be any worse but, you know, it's so funny because I'm sitting here for a few minutes and we're trying to work it out. And Vicky's restarted her computer and stuff. And I'm looking down on my toes, right? Mind you, I haven't, since the lockdown, I don't think I've changed my toenail color. So there's very little pieces of it left. And I'm thinking to myself, this lockdown really has changed me because that would drive me nuts during the summer any other time of my life. But for some reason, I just let go of the little things and I have to appreciate that about this. I've let go of all these little stupid idiosyncrasies that I've had most of my life. And that includes like... The incessant need to always have my toes in. Oh, not me. I got my toes done already. I don't know what happened. But I have to say it was very anxiety inducing. I text my nail girl so she knows me. And I was, when I say harassing her, this woman should have blocked my number. <laughs> harassing her for her to send me a picture of what the nail salon looked like so I could determine if it was safe enough for me to go. And she took pictures at different angles because I'm fucking psychotic. And they were very safe. Very, very safe. I felt very safe in there. I got my nails and my toes done. But I felt bad for her because for like three days, I was like, can you send a picture? Have you started yet? What is it like? Do you feel safe? How do you feel working there? Can you just send me a picture? How many people are in there at one time? Is it, is it a lot of appointments? Or is it just, and I asked her so many questions that she just sent me the pictures and she sent me like three different angles. And I was like, she's definitely sick of See, my this ass. This is exactly why I don't miss any of this. Like, this isn't worth it just to have my nails and my toes done. I don't want to go through all that. I let go of all that anxiety. Not it's fun. been wonderful. Like, you should give it a try. <laughs> I can't because now I did it and now I'm going to have to stick to it. But it's one of the few places I feel safe going because yeah. like they put barriers in front of you that only your hands can go through. They put barriers on the side of you so you're not next to anybody. Like there's no way something can survive in that kind of environment. Like, oh, yeah, definitely not. Everything I can barely come. survive in there without a mask on. So it's one of those. The funny thing is I wore a mask before COVID to the nail salon because I couldn't take the smell and I couldn't take like the dust from like acrylic and stuff. So I already when I've gone masks. by the nail salons. I have to, like it literally makes me itchy now. Like I'm allergic to so many of the components in the inside. I can't even go into a nail salon anymore. So I, it was my responsibility the last three years to ensure my nails and toes were done, and I've let that shit go, and it's been wonderful. But I tried the whole quarantine. Well, it was still quarantined. I have tried this whole lockdown to paint my own nails, and I just can't. But it's just at the point now where I'm like, you know what? Who's seeing my toes other than me? Like I'm not going out. I'm not going to places there's not places where I'm comfortable publicly where I've been wearing sandals where I or like I haven't gone to a beach yet you know the the closest place is my pool and what my neighbors like big deal is it open now yeah it's been open it's just um no more than 10 people and you have to still social distance from apartments but the pool itself is like a standard three feet to nine feet you know so that kind of gives you a rough idea so only so many people could be there at one time and every day it's nice there are people already kind of hoarding the spots so Charlie and I tend to go later at night when everyone's like eating is there a time limit as far as we know no good because when we go there we're going in the middle of the night <laughs> no postage of what time should... and there's like you can open the gate like they don't lock it like other places no then we're going for midnight swims definitely but let's get into this story because i know your case is kind of long yes i found this on myghoststory.com yes there's one that i found that kind of drew my attention and it was called the ghost girl of medfield hmm. so this took place at a medfield state hospital between March through April of 2013. I visited Medfield State Hospital, which was opened from 1893 to 2003 in Medfield, Massachusetts, four girls and three guys. 
We had visited this historic site three different times from March through May of 2013. It was still coming out of winter and there was snow on the ground and it was really cold and windy. I might add that this place is not listed as being haunted. We just wanted to check it out because it had not been closed too many years ago. And it was a pretty neat ghost town and place to visit. The first two times we visited the place, nothing unusual about it and we felt fine. On the third and final visit, there seemed to be some electricity in the air. The atmosphere was much different than this visit than the previous two visits. There are some buildings that you can enter on this large campus. I see this neat Victorian style house and you could say that I was drawn to it. I looked through the window and I could hear as if someone was coming down the stairs and I actually saw dust get kicked up by the activity of it. I went to grab the doorknob to open it and a spirit passed right through me and I went down on my knees. My friends told me that my face changed when I looked at her when this happened and she slapped my hands off the doorknob in reaction to this. In the next couple of weeks, it felt like someone had punched me in my stomach and I was going to get sick from it. In my dreams while I was asleep at night, a ghost girl kept coming to me and told me that her name was Adelina. She told me that she had died in 1940 at 16 years old at Medfield State Hospital. She came to me in my dreams about three times. Later on, I went down at work with a back injury. I often wonder if it was the spirit of Adelina passing through me and altering my body from the inside. I'll never forget her, and I was truly touched by her spirit and long-lost story of her life. That's very creepy. There's one thing to, like see a ghost it's another thing to have it like come through your body and alter something like that's just creepy i think they call that like an attachment so like yeah it's weird when yeah. uh, when a spirit attaches like maybe they were trying to get into the body to take over or something and like that's to me that's just very that's very creepy i'm gonna drink yeah i have alcohol right now <laughs> that really gave me chills and then and whenever i get chills i'm like there's something that a ghost just passed through me too because I always feel like that's why I get the chills. It is very hot in here. There's no way that, like, there's no reason for me to have the chills right now. Today's episode is actually something I wrote for the very first episode of this podcast ever. But at that time, another really big podcast had done it. So I didn't want to do it so close to them. I've thought about it since then, and I've been just waiting for the right time to do this episode. And oddly enough, I had actually two friends in the last two weeks who I guess discovered this person send it to me and they're like oh my god you should cover this and I'm like all right this is a sign for me to cover this so this is like a completely insane story there's a lot of people involved I'll try not to make it too confusing but there's a lot of names involved and I remember hearing about this for the first time after seeing this movie called The Girl Next Door not the one with Emile Hirsch and The Pretty Girl Next Door. This is a different movie. Um, I thought that the movie was so crazy that it couldn't be true because it's just one of those things where I'm like, oh my God, who the hell thinks this sick shit up? Right. Then I saw it was based on a true story. But whenever you see that, it doesn't really always mean that it's very, very true because most of the time the story is exaggerated to make for a better movie. But once I started researching the movie is actually not as bad as what happened in real life which that doesn't really happen that often so this is the story of Gertrude Beneshevsky and she's known as Torture Mother all right so I'm going to start off by giving a little background on Gertrude she was born Gertrude Van Fossen in 1929 she was the third of six children there's not a lot of information about her childhood um all that you can really look up or see is that she shared an extremely close bond with her father but did not have such a good relationship with her mother. Um, in 1940, at the age of 11, she watched her father die of a heart attack and it kind of made her relationship with her mother even worse. At 16, she actually dropped out of school to marry an 18-year-old deputy named John Beneshevsky. I don't even know how to say her last name. I literally looked it up before recording this. Still don't remember. We're going to go with Beneshevsky. And she had four children with him. I think you're right. Yeah, Beneshevsky, right? Okay. He had a very violent temper. John, her husband, and he used to often beat Gertrude for quote unquote annoying him. They stayed together for about 10 years, which four kids in 10 years is a lot. That is. Four kids for anyone. I don't care if it took you 30 years to have them is a lot. So, well, my sister in law had three kids in under five years. So, yeah. That's a lot. But after 10 years, she actually ended up finally divorcing him and she was granted custody of all four. Within a year of her divorce from John, she met and married a man named Edward Guthrie who divorced her after three months when he was tired of having her four children run around. Shortly after she got divorced from Edward, Gertrude reconciled with John and they remarried. Listen, if you divorced him already, it's usually not a, like, that's like a sign. It already didn't work out. 
remarrying him. I mean, if you wanted to get back together, why are we marrying? I've never understood people who, re- who marry the same person twice. I just don't get it. Me neither. But they got remarried. They stayed together for another seven years and had another two kids before divorcing again in 1963. This is why you don't recycle. That's what I call that. Exactly. Why couldn't you just like be fuck buddies like everybody else? And see, this is uh, for people that might not know what I call recycling. It's not what you think. It's not the positive environment way. I (laughs) explained this to several people. I've never actually been that person when I break up with someone that I'm serious with to go back to them. And someone had asked me once why. And I'm like, it's the same reason I don't go into yesterday's garbage to eat today's meal. If it didn't work out the first time, going back to it, to the same thing, is just like eating garbage. You know what it is? Because a lot of times the person will change after you break up with them for the next person. But when they go back to you, they're going to go back into old habits. They're not changing for you. They're going to go right back into the same shit. So you remarried him, had another two kids, same shit, and you got divorced again. So now you've got three divorces by two different men under your belt. They got divorced in 1963. Around that time, Gertrude was 37. Still fairly young to have already been divorced three times and have six kids. She began having an affair with a 23-year-old man named Dennis Lee Wright, who also abused her because people tend to attract the same type. She became pregnant by him twice, suffering one miscarriage, which... There's some articles that stated it might have been as a result of him beating her. And she gave birth to one child, Dennis Jr. So now she's got seven kids. Shortly after his birth, Dennis abandoned her and disappeared. So now she's got, she's a single mom of seven. She, of course, is left completely destitute. Like, how is she supposed to, like, I don't care what job you have. You can't raise seven kids by yourself unless you're a millionaire. She thought a 23-year-old kid would raise children was gonna stay around for seven kids you're either blind or stupid one of the two the thing is that and again this is why it's so important to teach your children to be independent because she was completely supported by this 23 year old she was completely supported by dennis so of course when he leaves she's got no support with seven kids or have birth control talks yeah that too he had been supporting her financially and she was now forced to support herself and her seven children with the child support that she sometimes received from her first first and third husband, John, which I'm pretty sure wasn't enough to cover seven kids. And I'm pretty sure that he probably wasn't sending you money for the kid that wasn't his. Probably not. So Gertrude started performing like odd jobs around town, babysitting, but her financial problems just kind of keep getting worse. And her seventh, it gets really bad when her 17 year old daughter, Paula was pregnant after a fling with a much older married man. So now she's a grandma. Yes. Lord. Around this time, her health started to decline, which, you know, stress will do that to you. She was chronically ill with a number of unidentifiable diseases, probably because, again, when you're sick from stress, like, you don't even, like, you're going to be sick and you're not going to, what the fuck is wrong with you? So she's got all these unidentifiable diseases. She basically stopped performing proper hygiene on herself. So now she kind of, like, is sick, smells terrible, looks terrible, just looks disheveled all the time. And um, she barely ate. So this kind of starts affecting her outward appearance, resulting in a receding hairline, sunken eyes, and kind of like an overall skeletal appearance, which is what happens when you don't eat. She's trying to figure out ways to make money. And so she's been like babysitting and stuff. But I mean, how much money can you really make babysitting as a grown woman? That's usually... Something that a 12 or 13 year old girl does for very little money because they're 12 and 13. You already have seven kids and you're going to take right. on more children. Like your stress levels already at an all time high. That's nuts. So now at this point, I'm going to go through her kids. She had 17 year old Paula who was pregnant, which is her oldest. Her oldest is 17, which means she's got much younger kids in the house. She's got 15 year old Stephanie, 11 year old Marie, 10 year old Shirley, eight year old James, and now 18 month old Dennis Jr. It's crazy. She doesn't. She has a wide range of ages. It's not like all of her kids are teenagers that it could be a little bit less of a burden on her. She's got a baby. And what year is this? This is 1963-ish. So now we come across the Likens family. The Likens family had three children. Sylvia, who was 16. Jenny, who was around 15. And they had an older daughter named Diana, but she was grown and married and had, had kids. And there's two boys, Danny and Benny. Now the Likens family... The parents kind of needed someone to watch Sylvia and Jenny. Why they only sent the two boys, like they had two boys and they sent them to the grandparents. Why they didn't send all four kids? I mean, maybe the grandparents couldn't handle four kids, but they had Sylvia and Jan- Jenny. They apparently were part of like a traveling circus and they, or like a carnival and they were working it. So they needed someone 
So they're part of this like traveling carnival, whatever. So they're trying to work that and they needed someone to watch Sylvia and Jenny. So they have a mutual friend uh, named Darlene McGuire who introduces the Lycans to Gertrude. And Gertrude lived in a big house. I mean, I guess she had to. She got seven kids. Um, so she agrees to watch the two girls for $20 a week, which at that time was like $160. It's not known who actually suggested the arrangement. Now, let's note that the Lycans never went to see the house to make sure that it was fit for their daughters to live in. They just knew there was Gertrude in a big house and they were like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like you should have vetted it a little bit more, but that's not, you know, whatever. The 60s, people trusted people a lot more than they do now. Okay, so had Lester, who was the father, gone inside the home, he probably would have seen that there was no microwave, no stove, only enough beds for half the people living in the home, only bread and crackers in the pantry. Most surfaces in the home were cracked with layers of dirt, and there were only enough plates and utensils for three people. What? All he had to do was go inside the house and see this. Did not. Now, from the very beginning, there seemed to have been a clash with Sylvia and Paula, the oldest pregnant daughter, like right from the beginning. Yeah, and they're close in age too, right? So And they're close in age, and they're girls, and she wasn't pregnant. I don't know. There could have been a bunch of shit. There was a clash between them. So since Gertrude was so frail and underweight, she used to punish the girls, but she would use weapons from the very beginning because she kind of wasn't strong enough to beat them herself. Now, there were some articles, like there's kind of various reasons why the of like the beating started there are several articles that i read that actually said in the beginning gertrude was very nice to the girls and the parents were paying weekly for for her watching them and a lot of the articles said that the reason that the beatings began was because the parents were not they didn't miss a payment they were late with the payment and that's why i started the beatings but even after they got the payment she got the payment she never stopped so right. I don't know if that was actually why it started or it just happened to be at the same time. Because to me, if you started beating them because you didn't get the money, but then you got the money, you probably should have stopped. Right. No, totally. I just think she probably snapped. She wasn't right. She wasn't right in the head yeah. or anything. Yeah. She's already crazy. And then that was the final straw was losing that little bit of money. And even if she got it again, now she got used to hitting them. She got away with it. Yep. So. So she used to use two weapons primarily for corporal punishment, a fraternity style paddle and a thick leather belt. who apparently the leather belt was left behind by her ex-husband who was a police officer i don't know which husband it was i'm gonna assume it was john but it could have been edward though no you said in the beginning the deputy so the first yeah she began using the paddle on sylvia and jenny for various offenses and these offenses quote unquote included exchanging soda drink bottles for change at a nearby grocery store like something super innocent that kids i i did it for money as a kid because it's like an easy couple of bucks And shortly after the beating started, Sylvia and Jenny's parents actually did come to visit, but they never told them. And there's really, I'm not sure why, but it could be that they were scared. It could be they felt threatened. You know what? She was probably being considerate of her parents. She didn't want them to worry because they were already stressed out, splitting up their kids, trying to make money, traveling. I'm sure she was probably a good girl and was like, you know what? Let me not tell mom and dad. Right. And then at the same time, they weren't happening that frequently yet. So maybe they were hoping that it, what, they could just withstand it. Like, you never know. They're kids. This is an adult. And corporal punishment was kind of something that parents did. Maybe maybe their own parents hit them once in a while and they didn't think it was a big deal. Um, because at this time, right. it was just, you know, with a belt and a paddle. So the parents came to visit. The, neither one of them really said anything. They didn't get into the house. They didn't see what they were living in. I tried to look it up. And I think that I think one article said they, they still hadn't gone in the house. They kind of like stayed outside and like barbecued. But like, what? yeah, to me, I, I would I would want to go inside the house. I'm sorry. I would never even be comfortable leaving like my nephews or nieces in a place that I haven't entered the home, you know, not, let alone my own children. Like, I, I don't know how that would work. No way. And to me, like, another thing that is they, like, these girls could have mentioned the beatings to them, and they didn't. So you would think it would deter her from beating them, like, okay, they didn't say anything, let me not beat. But I guess it's also because we grew up now where nobody really trusts anybody, and back then people just trusted people, and they were introduced by a mutual friend, and they must have thought, well, this mutual friend wouldn't introduce me to someone who... But to me, I still think it was crazy that she continued to beat them after they didn't rat her out. I just don't understand the, the, like, the casualty of just, like, like, I'm not going to go inside and check the the backyard, but never go see where my children are sleeping. Or, like, you didn't run in for a glass of water. Like, I just, I I can't comprehend how you just didn't happen to go inside this house. It's just. It's crazy. 
It's not even a, oh, let me investigate. Like just a simple, can I use your restroom? You know what I mean? Like, how did you not go inside? Or like, hey, show me your house. It's huge. Right. Ugh, hate people. So after this, the punishments start getting pretty much worse. They, be get, they get more frequent and they start happening for like really stupid reasons. So for example, there was one time that Gertrude's children came home from an event at church. Like they, they used to go to church, of course, they used to go to church and they would take Sylvia and Jenny with them. And apparently at church, you know, they had food and stuff. And the children came home and basically told Gertrude that they were disgusted with the amount of food that Sylvia ate probably starving because they didn't feed her because they had no food in the house. And so after this, Gertrude became so angry and she forced Sylvia to eat a hot dog piled with condiments, like just piled with condiments, which sounds absolutely atrocious. When Sylvia threw up, Gertrude forced her to scoop the vomit and eat it. Oh, this is a warning to everybody listening. This is a very graphic episode. There's a lot of shit that goes down. So shortly after that incident, the parents came to visit their daughters again. And again, they didn't even mention the beatings or the vomit incident. Abused kids tend to not say anything. It's, it's, it's a thing. So that's why I'm like, all right, I get it. But now the real torture seemed to begin. This wasn't the real torture yet, by the way. After a, a time that Gertrude didn't receive, actually didn't receive a payment from Sylvia's parents, the day was expected. So this happens. And a- according to the sister Jenny, Gertrude kind of came upstairs slapped Jenny and said, well, I took care of you two bitches for a week for nothing. So she usually beat Sylvia more, but she actually hit Jenny this time. She forced the girls to lie across her bed with their underwear down to their ankles and she beat their buttocks. The money order arrived the next day, but Gertrude had already decided she was going to keep torturing the girls. Once again, the Lycans came for a visit. Beatings weren't mentioned. So this is the third visit. Third time beatings weren't mentioned. And it seems like it escalates every time they come for a visit. Yeah, it does. So now this is August of 1965, and Gertrude's health really starts to decline even further. So one day she overhears Sylvia making a remark that she had one time allowed a boy to touch her, like feel her up a little bit. Now she's 16. If any of you wants to sit there and act like you didn't get felt up. Seven kids. You're a fucking liar. Mm -hmm. And coming from the woman who at 16 dropped out of school to get married, you are a fucking hypocrite. So she becomes like super irrationally angry at this remark. And she just goes into like this fit of rage, starts to accuse Sylvia of being a prostitute and basically tells the entire house that Sylvia was pregnant because she let a boy touch her vagina. I was actually going to say, you're going to judge her, but your daughter's knocked up. Like, who the hell are you? By a married older man. She's nuts. Gertrude then attacked Sylvia by re- and repeatedly kicked her in the crotch. Which, for guys, if you don't know, it hurts for a girl too. And not just that too. It's like dangerous for her future if she wants to have children. Yep. When Sylvia attempted to sit afterwards, Paula, th- Paula who is Gertrude's oldest daughter and the pregnant one, threw Sylvia out of the chair and informed her, you ain't fit to sit in chairs. From then on, Gertrude only allowed Sylvia to sit in chairs with permission. Around this time, Gertrude also started allowing her children to use Sylvia as kind of like a plaything, uh, like a form of entertainment, ranging from beatings to being pushed down the stairs. So now at this point, she's getting beaten by Gertrude and her kids. The day after being kicked in the crotch, according to Jenny, as an act of whatever sick reasoning that Gertrude had, they like, she like, the abuse just keeps getting worse. So Sylvia and Jenny actually told their classmates, like just kind of like to get back at everything happening, that they had seen Paula and Stephanie, which is or Gertrude's two oldest daughters, having sex with boys in exchange for money. Because, you know, they're angry and they want to get back at them. So they're like, okay, let's start rumors. So when Stephanie, the 15-year-old, she had a boyfriend named Coy Hubbard. So when he discovered what Sylvia and Jenny had said, he came to Gertrude's house to tell her what he had heard them say. So then Gertrude turns around and instructed him to start practicing judo on Sylvia. What? Like like karate? Yeah, like literally using her as like a punching bag, literally. Holy shit. Around this time, Gertrude convinces Sylvia's best friend, Anna, that Sylvia had been telling boys at school that her mother was a whore. So now she's really just trying to ruin all aspects of her life. When Gertrude took Anna to see Sylvia, she directed Anna in a... Like, to basically start attacking Sylvia, saying, you know, she calls your mother a whore, attack her. Soon after that, one of Paula's friends named Judy, that kind of had heard the rumors that Sylvia had been spreading, got Sylvia into a fistfight also. Like, she basically everybody was in on it. So she started getting other people to get into fights with Sylvia at school. Everybody was treating this 16-year-old like a human punching bag. Yes. 
at some point during this fight that Sylvia was having with Anna, um, that everybody was instigating, she told Jenny to hit Sylvia. Jenny refused. When Jenny refused, Gertrude began to beat Jenny in the face until Jenny agreed to punch Sylvia. Can her sister punch her? Yeah. Wow. In addition to the girls not mentioning to their parents that this abuse was taking place, there at this point are plenty of witnesses and participants in all of the abuse that are not saying anything. Yeah. It only took one of the seven kids to, to really give the parents a heads up and be like, listen, they're being beaten here. Yeah. Instead, they participated. And then got their friends to do it too. So there's more than enough people knowing this is happening. And the thing is, the more people that know and it keeps on happening, the more scared they're going to be to tell them because they're going to be like, well, there's a bunch of people here who know and obviously they're not saying anything. So, okay. So this is August of 1965. There, next to Gertrude's house, uh, there was the house next to Gertrude was vacant. And then finally in August of 1965, a couple named Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion bought the house next door. Now, Phyllis sees the number of children that Gertrude is caring for. And instead of being like, why the fuck are there so many kids over there? She thinks that Gertrude would make a good babysitter for her two children and starts paying her to babysit her kids. They arranged a backyard barbecue so that two families could get to know one another. During the course of the barbecue, Phyllis witnesses Sylvia wandering around the yard with a black eye. Paula tells her like it's nothing that she was the one who gave it to her. She's like, yeah, I punched her in the face. I gave her the black eye. Then, under Gertrude's supervision, Paula approached Sylvia with a glass of steaming hot water and threw it in her face. In front of them? And they didn't do anything about it. They didn't report it. And they still let them watch their children. I don't think they did, but they also didn't report it. <laughs> wow. So it's like, well, you can't watch my kids. Keep beating that one. Two months after this, Phyllis went to the house to borrow something from Gertrude, and she kind of, like, you know, stays to chat for a little bit. Apparently not thinking that anything that is missing in this house is weird, which is something I don't understand. But she's there for a couple of hours. And while she's there, she notices that Sylvia is kind of walking around in like a daze and she's got swollen lips and she's got a black eye that is swollen shut. To demonstrate how this had happened, Paula took off her belt and began to beat Sylvia in front of Phyllis. And she still didn't report it. And is Sylvia, I'm sorry, but like Sylvia just not fighting back? No. Wow. I mean, at this point, she's got seven kids and an adult beating her. Okay, so she didn't report this either. Around that time, Phyllis also saw Paula beating Sylvia one time when Sylvia came home from school. Still doesn't report it. One time, Sylvia comes home from school, tells Gertrude that she needs a sweatsuit from gym class. Gertrude says that she can't afford one. So Sylvia ended up stealing one from school because what the hell else is she supposed to do? Um, when Gertrude confronted Sylvia about her new gym outfit, she she confesses to stealing because, I mean, what other explanation would she really have for getting if she didn't have any money? So instead of being an understanding person and realizing that she did what she had to do to get the outfit, that's not how Gertrude reacted, she starts calling her a prostitute, throws her on the ground, starts kicking her, and then, you know, starts yelling about how she's a thief and all this. And to cure, quote unquote, Sylvia of her, quote unquote, sticky fingers, she burned the tips of each of Sylvia's fingers with a lit cigarette. Horrible. And then afterwards, she made Sylvia bend over while she whipped her with a belt. After this incident, apparently Gertrude wasn't the only smoker in the house. Gertrude and all, any, any smokers that were in there kind of just started randomly putting out their cigarettes all over Sylvia's body as a, quote unquote, reminder for her not to steal. So sometime after this, Sylvia went to sell old soda bottles for money. When she returned home, Gertrude accused her again of being a prostitute because that could honestly, obviously be the only way she could make money. At this point, she made Sylvia go into the living room, forced her to strip naked in front of her boys, in front of her sons, and several other of the neighborhood boys on the threat of beating Jenny. So that's the only reason she did it. Once Sylvia was fully naked, Gertrude handed Sylvia a glass cola, like the old school ones, they were in glass bottles. Oh, God, I already know what you're going to say. Go ahead. And forced Sylvia to masturbate with it in front of the boys. I knew you were going to say that. Oh, oh. You know, there's certain injuries that come along with doing something like that. And one of them is that at 16 years old, Sylvia was now incontinent, which means that she could not control her, her bladder. So once she becomes incontinent, obviously you, you piss yourself. Like, that's just what happens. And so at this point, because Sylvia became incontinent, Gertrude decided that she was no longer to fit, fit to live with humans and locked her in the basement. The basement had no toilet, so she was forced to urinate and defecate on the floor. And when Gertrude sees this, she begins this bathing thing, like ritual, um, to cleanse her because she's, you know, dirty. The team consisted of filling the bathtub with scalding hot water, binding Sylvia's wrists and ankles, and then dunking Sylvia into the bathtub. And sometimes she would do it one time a day. Sometimes she would do it several times a day. Sometimes she wouldn't do it at all. 
And then following these baths, she would rub handfuls of handfuls of salt all over her body. God. During this time, Gertrude kind of becomes a little bit too close to this 14-year-old named Ricky. He's one of the neighborhood boys and she takes him on as her like personal assistant when it comes to dealing with Sylvia because now you know she needs a personal assistant to deal with the torture that she's inflicting on this girl. And she recruits a teenage boy. A 14-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. Ricky had never been in legal trouble. He was just like this regular neighborhood boy. But then he just starts like following everything that Gertrude says. I don't know why. It was like a spell on on him. And he just kind of starts doing whatever she says. A lot of reports have speculated that he was her lover and that she seduced him. But there's not really proof of that. But that's what they suspect, which kind of makes sense. At 14, yeah. Yeah. Sylvia basically was kept in that basement. She was no longer fit to live in the house. And she was pretty much kept... Did she even go to school at this point? I think... No, I don't think at this point she was going to school. She was kept constantly naked and they didn't really feed her. And when she was allowed to eat, it was always in some like really weird and bizarre way. Like one time when she forced her to eat soup with her fingers. Like it was never just like, here's some food. It was always something stupid and weird and crazy. But at this point, like... The neighborhood boys become kind of involved in all the torture on Sylvia. And 27-year-old Johnny, which is one of her sons, um, would make Sylvia, like, clean the basement. And he basically forced her to eat her own feces and drink her own urine. At this time, Jenny manages to somehow send a letter to her older sister, Diana. Remember, Diana is married. And she kind of starts telling her that all of the stuff that's going on and what's happening to Sylvia, because Jenny's not really getting much of it. It's all happening to Sylvia. They targeted her for some reason, so. Yes. Was she super pretty? Like, was she, like, prettier than the rest of them? She was not an ugly girl. So she kind of tells Diana what's going on and asks her to please contact the police to come and rescue them. Diana ignores the letter. She thought that Jenny was kind of just making up stories because she wanted to live with her and didn't want to live with Gertrude anymore. So now Gertrude's reverend at one point named Julian visited. And while he was there drinking coffee with her, Gertrude complained to him that Sylvia was a burden on her and claimed that she was a prostitute who was servicing married men and had gotten pregnant, even though that wasn't true. It was actually Paula who had slept with a married man and become pregnant. Her daughter going to give birth and she's going to say it's Sylvia's. Right. Like, um, you know, after a while you can see somebody's pregnant. Yeah. She insisted that Paula was a virgin and that Sylvia was m- passing off her misdeeds on Paula when... Paula was fucking pregnant. I don't understand what she thought was going to happen. Gertrude and the Reverend prayed for, you know, Sylvia's salvation and the Reverend left. Never once even asking to like see her. Speak with her. Anything. Nope. So then after that, Diana actually does come to visit. Maybe she had a change of heart, change of conscience, whatever the reasoning is. Or maybe she was just like, you know what? Let me go see. Gertrude refused to let her in the house. Uh Uh-uh. Telling her that the parents had told Gertrude not to let Diana in the house. See, no, I would have called the cops right then and there as the older sister. Nope. Diana questions it. And Gertrude said that she was going to call the cops for ha- and having and have Diana arrested for trespassing. Yeah, and I would have been like, yeah, let me see my sister or go do a wellness check. Well, what Diana does is she pretends to leave and actually hides near the house. And so she spots Jenny. And Jenny told her that Sylvia wasn't allowed to talk to her and ran away. Diana does contact. She doesn't contact the cops. She actually contacts social services. A social worker comes to the house. Gertrude told her that she had kicked Sylvia out of the house for being physically unclean and a prostitute and that Sylvia ran away. And the social worker bought it, didn't even look around. Yep. And Gertrude was also able to convince the social worker, oh, convince Jenny to go along with the story. This is why she believes it. Um, telling her that if she told the truth, Jenny would join her sister naked in the basement. So when the social worker gets there, Jenny also goes along with this. Sylvia was a prostitute and ran away. So Jenny tells the social worker Sylvia ran away and the social worker returns to office, files a report that states that nothing else needs to be done. On October 20th, 1965, Gertrude calls the police to come arrest a boy from her home. His name was Robert Bruce Hanlon. He was a neighborhood boy that Gertrude's children had stolen things from his basement. He came to the house, demanded that Gertrude return his things. And when she refused, he attempted to sneak into the home and take them back. Mm -hmm. When that happens, Phyllis, AKA the worst fucking neighbor ever, witnessed him like doing this, witnesses the cops putting him in the back of a squad car, approached the police to speak on his behalf and just said that he had had an argument with Gertrude earlier, like kind of like speaking on his behalf, but made no mention of the fact that she was keeping a 16 year old girl naked and starving in her basement. Literally the worst human. It's almost as bad as her doing it. She may as well have just joined Gertrude in, in doing all this stuff to the... It's, it's the same thing. So now the next day, Gertrude instructs some of her kids to bring Sylvia up from the basement and tie her to the bed and told Sylvia that if she could hold her bladder through the night and not pee on herself, she could sleep upstairs again. 
She's incontinent, though, so... It's not gonna happen. When Gertrude checked on Sylvia the next morning, she had wet the bed. So Gertrude made her strip. She made her do the thing with the Coke bottle again in front of her sons and the neighborhood boys. When she was finished, she allowed herself to get dressed. But after a few minutes for no reason, she just started yelling and started bringing up the lie, like the rumors that she had spread about Paula and just starts flipping out about something that had happened months before, just for no fucking reason. She just needed something to be mad about. Exactly. As an excuse. And she starts yelling, quote, you have branded my daughters, so I will brand you. So again, Sylvia, who had just been allowed to get dressed for the first time in a while, was forcibly stripped naked, tied down and gagged while one of Gertrude's children heated up a sewing needle and used it to carve the letter I, part of the letter M, into Sylvia's stomach. She then instructed Ricky, her little personal assistant, to continue and spell out the phrase, I'm a prostitute and proud of it. Mad long. Shit. Yeah. Like you couldn't just scratch her and leave her alone. Like, no, you had to. No, she wanted to write that. Disgusting. When it was done... It wasn't just that she like carved letters into her stomach. It resulted in third degree burns because of the heating of the needle. They said that it was so bad that a modern, meaning a plastic surgeon now, would not have been able to fix it. After Gertrude left the room, after that was done, Sylvia was still tied up and gagged. And Ricky, Paula, and Gertrude's 10-year-old daughter, 10-year-old daughter, Shirley, decided to tattoo an S in the middle of Sylvia's chest. Ricky carved out the bottom part of the S, but he, they're not sure if he just couldn't do it or if he changed his mind, but he didn't finish it. He then ordered Jenny to finish, but she refused. He then turned to 10-year-old Shirley and ordered her to finish it. And she kind of does it, but she accidentally carves the S backwards so that it looks, now Sylvie has a number three tattooed on her chest. When Gertrude comes back, she goes up to Sylvia and asks her, what are you going to do now, Sylvia? You can't get married now. You can't undress in front of anyone. What are you going to do now? Sylvia replied, I guess there is nothing I can do. It's on there. I mean, she branded the girl. What else is she going to do? She can't undo it. She gets taken back to the basement by Stephanie's little boyfriend, Koi, who does the judo on her, and he starts practicing judo on her again. In the middle of the night, Jenny actually snuck into the basement to visit Sylvia, where Sylvia told her, I'm going to die, I can tell. Shortly after Jenny's visit to the basement, Gertrude goes into the basement for reasons that nobody knows. She just went to the basement and brought Sylvia upstairs and allowed her to sleep in one of the beds. So she had like a sudden attack of humanity for two seconds. She was allowed to sleep until noon the next day. So now we're on October 23rd, 1965. When Gertrude goes to wake her with Stephanie, they took her to the bathroom, gave her a warm bath. So like she's still acting kind of human towards her. After the bath, Gertrude and Paula dressed Sylvia. This is why they were acting human because, you know, when you're someone who's abused, when your abuser shows a little bit of humanity, you kind of just blindly follow them. So they're doing all these nice things. They're letting her sleep in the bed. They let her sleep in the next day. They gave her this warm bath. They didn't beat her. They didn't torture her. They're not yelling at her. They're not screaming at her. They dictate to her a letter to write that makes it sound like she's running away. They're prepping to kill her. They're prepping. Yeah, they're sending this letter to her parents. So yeah, they're prepping to kill her. Gertrude asked Sylvia to address the letter, quote, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Likens, which when you talk to your parents, you don't call them Mr. and Mrs. Likens, but okay. The letter stated, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said they would pay me if I would give them something. So I got in the car, and they all got what they wanted. And when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I can do to make Gertie mad at me and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I have also crossed Gertie doctor's bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids. So now she's not only setting them up to die, she's setting it up so that it's somebody else's fault. Sylvia was instructed not to sign the letter, though. And then Gertrude starts baking this plan up to have Jenny and John take Sylvia to a nearby garage and just leave her to die. So it kind of looks like that's what happened, and then she was left to die. She bakes up this whole plan in her head. When Sylvia overhears this, she tries to run for the door, but she hasn't been fed. She's mutilated. She has no strength to do this. So just as she reaches the front door, she gets dragged back inside the house, which is crazy because they kind of let her get to, in my opinion, they let her get to the front door just to pull her back. And I feel like that's even more torture. They could have gotten her before that. She was not moving that fast. They let her get all the way to the front door to let her think, hmm, maybe you're going to get away before they pull her back. Gertrude settles Sylvia down, takes her in the kitchen and makes her some toast. Sylvia attempts to eat it, but she can't swallow because that's just something that happens when you're emaciated. Gertrude then takes down a curtain rod in the kitchen and beats Sylvia in the mouth with it. 
Then John takes Sylvia to the basement, ties her up, while Gertrude prepares a plate of crackers for her. She offers the plate uh, offers a crackers to Sylvia. Sylvia replied, "Feed it to the dog. It's hungrier than I am." Gertrude repeatedly punches Sylvia in the stomach before just leaving her in the basement. The next day, October 24th, 1965, Gertrude comes to the basement, attempts to bludgeon Sylvia. She tried to hit her with a chair, but missed and broke it in the wall. Which, because remember, Gertrude is also sick and she's also not strong, but she's stronger than Sylvia. But she still manages to miss her when she tries to beat her with a chair. Next, she tried to beat her over the head with a paddle, but she swung it in like a wide, they said, the article said in such a wide arc that it came back against her own face, blacking her own eye. Good. So then at this point, Koi, who is Stephanie's boyfriend, is like, all right, stop. You obviously can't do this. And he steps up to the plate and beats Sylvia unconscious with a broomstick. Over the course of that night and into the next morning on October 25th, 1965, Sylvia starts to beat the basement floor with the scoop portion of an iron shovel. And I think she was doing this to try to get someone's attention to maybe call the police because that's really freaking loud. And in the report, it said that the neighbors considered calling the police, but ultimately chose not to. She tried to ask for help. On October 26, 1965, Gertrude said she was going to give Sylvia a warm bath. Stephanie and Ricky bring Sylvia upstairs, laid her in a tub fully clothed, then took her out shortly after and realized she wasn't breathing. Stephanie supposedly gives Sylvia CPR, but by this time, Sylvia was already dead. Supposedly, she gives her CPR she was already dead. Wait, she was already dead when they put her in the tub? Yeah. They claim that after they took her out of the tub, they realized she wasn't breathing. So now at this point, Gertrude tells her children to take Sylvia's body to the basement, strip it naked. She tells Ricky to go to a nearby payphone and call the police because she didn't have a working phone in her house. And when the police arrived, Gertrude gave them the letter that she had Sylvia write. And at this point, Jenny is the one who goes up to one of the officers and whispers, get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. Finally. Because they were probably about to believe that letter. So this statement, plus the discovery of Sylvia's body, makes the police arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, John, Ricky, and Coy. The other children present, which were some neighborhood boys, were Mike Monroe, Randy Lepper, and they were also arrested. So now the family gets arrested for murder, and these neighborhood boys get arrested for injury to a person. Um, So Gertrude and her children, Ricky and Coy, were held without bail pending their trials, but the neighborhood boys, their charges were dismissed. Stephanie's lawyer got Stephanie a separate trial, but the DA ends up dropping the murder charges against Stephanie, the 15-year-old. An autopsy of Sylvia came up with these injuries. She had over 100 cigarette burns on her body, various second and third degree burns, severe bruising and muscle nerve damage. And I guess in the course of her dying, Sylvia had actually bitten through her lips that were nearly swollen shut. And an examination revealed her hymen to be intact, which basically Gertrude was wrong. She was a virgin. The official cause of death was brain swelling, internal hemorrhaging of the brain, and shock. So Gertrude's attorney tried blaming the children. But the children kind of testified, and that, that's where most of the tem- testimony came from. But some of the, most, the worst testimony that caused basically like the most you know, damaging testimony came from Gertrude. She recounted bizarre fucking stories about Sylvia becoming a neighborhood prostitute, which we already know isn't true because her hymen was intact. Um, Starts talking about she had these affairs with middle-aged married men, which again... Oh, wait, hold on. And what's insane about that is despite all the abuse she took, she still, her hymen never did break. So, like, that's already further proof that this is all just a conspiracy. Yeah. Mind you, again, her daughter's the one doing these things, and she's saying that it was Sylvia. And that she also accused her of starting fights in the home. So now the 11-year-old Marie was called to testify to, you know, try to back up some of these wild stories that Gertrude was saying. And initially, Marie was backing up her mom. Until cross-examination, when she suddenly screamed, God help me, and admitted everything she said was a lie and went on to state in graphic detail everything that her mother and her siblings had done to torture and kill Sylvia. Paula was convicted of second-degree murder. She later appealed and was granted a new trial, but before it began, she ended up pleading, and she pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter. She was sentenced to 18 months in a juvenile detention facility. Ricky was also imprisoned, but he was released at 17. But once it sunk in what he had done, he actually ended up suffering a nervous breakdown. Because again, remember, before he had gotten trapped in Gertrude's whole thing, he was a regular kid. He had never gotten in trouble. So this caused him to go into a nervous breakdown. He started chain smoking and died of lung cancer at 21. And I, sorry, but I don't feel bad. Gertrude was found guilty of murder, but later appealed and was also granted a new trial. 
Her sentence in the first trial was death, but in the second trial, she got 18 years to life. On December 4th, 1985, which was 20 years later, Gertrude was released from prison and traveled to Iowa under the name Nadine Van Fossen. Get the fuck out. They let her out? Yep. In 1990, she died of lung cancer. Again, I don't feel bad. That was too long of a life for her. She got to, she got to, she got to 20 years. A lot of the children, like the younger children, I don't know what happened to them. No matter where I looked, they didn't really say anything. They were minors, so I'm guessing that that's why you don't know what happened to them. But it's stated that Paula also moved to Iowa. She served seven years ago. Stephanie moved to Florida and became a teacher. Oh. She's Florida. That's what the fuck it is. Florida. They'll take anything. She served no time. Her charges were dropped when she agreed to basically testify against her family. John served two years on his manslaughter conviction and then changed his name to John Blake and became a truck driver and then was in real estate and then a minister. Oh, yeah. Sure. No charges were ever brought against 11-year-old Marie. She reportedly still lives in Indiana. Shirley was never charged because she was only 10, and nobody knows what happened to her after that. Coy only served two years. Never changed his name, never left Indiana. He just didn't give a shit. Just kind of kept living there. Richard Hobbs, one of the neighborhood boys, served two years. That was it. That's basically all that happened to the people that tortured and killed Sylvia. Jenny died in 2004 at the age of 54. That's what happened. Yeah, I remember like certain details of that case, but like there were certain things that like to this day made me feel like lightheaded hearing it. I'm actually anxious after saying that because it was horrible. I got to listen to it over and over again. So yay for me. I just can't believe this is like one of the worst cases of child abuse I've ever heard in my life. And it wasn't that long ago. This was the 60s. People from that time are still alive now. If that had happened today, none of those people would be walking around. They wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. And the thing is, at least some of them had the good mind to change their name and move to another state. But the fact that some of them just were like walking around Indiana, like shows you that they didn't really pay or understand. Not that they don't understand. They didn't face any consequences, really. What's two years? What about the Likens family? What was their reaction to all this? Like, what did the mom and dad do? I did read some stuff about them and it was hard because a lot of what happened to their daughter, they learned at the trial. So they're like hearing it in front of other people. And I'm sure that the guilt that they felt had to be horrendous because you visited so many times and had no idea what was going on. Gotta be immeasurable. And clearly they cared about their kids. They came for visits. They tried to figure it out. They didn't abandon their kids. They were working and didn't want, they they wanted their kids to be with someone they thought was reliable. They thought was going to send them to school. They thought, and they're paying these people. It's not like they like dropped their kids off. They were literally paying. So there's sitting here thinking i paid this woman to torture and kill my daughter this is one of the many reasons why i don't have children i can't afford it i wouldn't put my pressure on myself that way nor would i put that on somebody else that already is stretched to the limit so it's just one of those things like this is horrible and it was completely avoidable but at the same time like you said people were a lot more innocent back then they were trusting if someone said hey my neighbor can watch your kids you just like okay and sent your kids there like there wasn't any thought remember that this time hitchhiking got in a stranger's car because you just trusted people this is a case that i'm always going to remember and again, the movie that I saw was The Girl Next Door, if you want to see the film adaptation. Is it an older film? Yes, it's from 2007. It's not starring anybody that you would really know, so it's nobody famous. But um, the release date was October 3rd, 2007. And again, it's called The Girl Next Door. It's by Jack Ketchum. And that's, that's the person who wrote the book. And yeah, so that's to make sure it's the 2000. It's actually labeled as a horror film, and I totally agree. I concur 100%. But let's get into this who does that because I, I have to get over this case now. Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? Who, who does, does that? that? I found this on torontosun.com and the headline reads, Canuck halts Florida skinny dipping spree via CCT. So a young Florida woman who loves to swim in the nude found herself in some legal trouble thanks to her Canadian neighbor's security setup. She was acting like Florida, but she wasn't in Florida anymore. She ain't in Florida no more because Capri Wiederman, 22, she was arrested for trespassing and burglary after allegedly repeatedly going skinny dipping at her neighbor's house, according to NBC2 News. So it wasn't just like a one-time thing. She just kept... Yeah. She goes... And not only are you just breaking into someone's backyard and using their pool, but you're doing it naked. Like, it's so disrespectful and rude. We're in the middle of a lockdown. What, like, what gives you the audacity to do this? Only someone from Florida would think this is okay. So Weedman apparently thought nobody was home and nobody would be the wiser. But it's 2020 and cameras are everywhere. Like, duh. Her neighbor was watching from far away and says his pool cage was cut open and the, st- the steak knife was found at the scene. So it's not like it was just like an open gate that happened to be open. She literally broke into their pool to skinny dip. Yep. 
Okay. And on camera, no less. Like, if you can afford a pool, you can afford a $30 Amazon camera. So what makes you think you're not being filmed? That just goes right, straight like you nowadays. People definitely, if you have something like that, you have, you just have to assume people have, I just assume there's cameras everywhere I go. Everywhere. I'm being filmed at all times. I'm nervous to like pick a wedgie sometimes. That's the thing. I always say, I'm like, I can't do anything embarrassing in public. I can't fall. I can't pick my nose. I can't pick my butt. Someone's going to catch it on film. Charlotte County deputies found cigarettes, keys, women's underwear, and a steak knife left behind at the pool. The neighbor has been unable to travel back to Florida because of COVID-19 related travel restrictions and said the woman has repeatedly broken in and swam in his pool. The Canadian says his he sent letters and put up signs, but nothing worked. So he had to call the police. He was being Canadian about it. He left signs, asked her to stop, made it very clear he didn't want her to do He actually gave you several, like he literally basically let you go in his pool several times hoping, all right, maybe this time she'll get it because she'll see this. Maybe this time she'll get it because I put up a sign like if you had been in Florida or anywhere else you would have gotten the cops called on you after the first time the funny end to this note has says is exactly this Wiedemann tried to lie her way out of an arrest but her own mother says she swims in the neighbor's pool every other day (gasps) your own mother she has since been bonded out of jail and what was even funnier to top this all off was the girl mugshot reminds me of Danielle McDonald for the actress who people might know as the girl from the bird box from bird box. (gasps) Oh my God. That's so, Oh my God. (laughs) She looks like somebody who would break into your pool and go swimming. And after politely declining and telling you, Hey, you're not welcome to my pool. She would continue to do so. But yeah, Florida acting Florida, even when they're not in Florida, that's the end of that story. Floridians are going to be Floridians. That's just what it is. But anyway, thank you for that lighthearted ending to a very, very somber episode. This is a really sad episode. And, you know, let's always think of Sylvia whenever we see anything that we're uncomfortable with. Yes, please. If your neighbor is beating a child, please tell somebody. Especially right now. I hear all these stories about how kids get hit at home and abused at home and schools are only outlet. And now they've been at home with all these abusers. And, you know, it's really important for us to just... Be aware and be aware of your surroundings. You're not the only one suffering. There are tons of people. And the best thing you can do right now is just help one another. And on that note, I hope you guys think about this episode. I don't want to say enjoy. Subscribe. Please keep listening. Leave us a review. Check us out online. Check out our merch. But most importantly, stay weird, Americas. Bye. Bye.